This is an ABC podcast. Oh, it's been an interesting year in national and international politics. The pandemic has brought out the best and the worst in leaders around the globe. And I'm sure everyone has an opinion on politicians like New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and US President Donald Trump. But sharing these opinions at work can be really tricky. So how do we talk politics at work without starting a workplace war? Do we just learn to politely agree to disagree? I'm Lisa Leong, and with me on This Working Life today is Dr Raina Brands. Raina is an Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School, and she's an expert in social networks. Hi, Raina. Hi, Lisa. So why do political conflicts, whether it's with family members or someone at work, become personal so quickly? Well, our politics represent our values and our values are really our, our moral system. It's the way we think about the world. It's the way we think about right and wrong. It's the way we think about ourselves and the important people in our lives. Uh, so in that way, uh, politics are, are profoundly personal. And so when we disagree on a political opinion, uh, it, it feels profoundly personal. It feels like people are disagreeing with us, with our very uh, essence, our very selves. How are they formed? Well, it, it seems like uh, we share a lot of political values with uh, our social network. So uh, a lot of our political values comes from our home experience, our, our parents' views. A lot of our political values uh, come from our immediate social network, our friends. Uh, but there's some, also some interesting research that suggests that our personality plays a role uh, and even that uh, people at different ends of the political spectrum, so conservative versus liberal, uh, even that our brains uh, process information differently. Uh, there seems to be some sort of structural difference between our brains. So uh, it really comes from a variety of places. Uh, now tell me about your friend from kindergarten. <laughs> Yeah, she's a good example, actually. Uh, you know, we've, we've been friends, you know, for a really long time, uh, but we are at uh, different ends of the political spectrum and uh, I would say I'm quite vocal about my views and uh, she had a time in her life was very politically active. I, I did notice that I had this experience that around election time, you know, when she's particularly vocal about her political views, I really, I actually, I hated her a little bit. You know, of course, and of course, I recognize that we're friends and we're always going to be friends. But, you know, I felt that really sort of visceral um, irritation at, at her views. And that really illustrates the point I make about how personal these views are. So you've probably heard the expression, a friend of my friend is a friend. Mm. It comes from this idea of, of balance theory, uh, which is a theory that's been around since the 1950s. Uh, but that idea doesn't just apply to people. It also applies to things like political views, like values, uh, how we feel about important things in the world. And so the general experience that we have is that we agree with our friends on our politics. We agree with our friends on important issues. If my friend likes the thing, I like the thing. <laughs> and when we have the experience, like I have with that friend, of we disagree on this issue that's important to both of us, it creates this kind of emotional tension where we're out of balance and we, you know, it, it feels really bad and it feels really aversive. 
and we feel like we need to take steps to rectify it. So what did you end up doing? Did you have to avoid her during election time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we avoid each other uh, during election time. She's not very, uh, she's not particularly (laughs) confrontational. She doesn't particularly like open conversations. But, you know, I don't, I actually don't think that we should be avoiding talking to our, our friends and important people in our lives about uh, our disagreements like this, I, I think that's actually counterproductive. I think we should actually be engaging in these conversations. Well, uh, let's go to the workplace then because sometimes you can't avoid your work colleagues. So what should we do in this circumstance where we really disagree with someone on a political front at work? I think we all approach these conversations uh, incorrectly. Uh, you know, I have this form of for how to do it and even I fall into some very common traps. And the first mistake we all make is we don't, we don't actually listen. And I would always say, start with listening. And I mean, really listen. I don't mean wait for the other person to stop talking so you can tell them what you think. Actively listen, ask follow-up questions, really fully explore their point of view on a topic until you really understand it. Even if you don't agree with it, you really understand it. The reason why listening is so important is because even if you never get to a point of agreement, even if you never find common ground, by listening, you're at least creating a norm in the workplace that people listen to each other, that we can have these conversations that feel a little bit contentious, uh, but they end with everybody feeling like I've been listened to and they've listened to me in return. It doesn't end with this, this feeling of, did we just have an argument? Are we going to be able to work together tomorrow? And that is hard, isn't it, when you're talking about that visceral sort of reaction. I totally understood that when you said it. So what are you doing there? You're just holding yourself back. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is just practice. Exactly. That is just practice. I think the second big mistake we all make in these conversations, even if we listen, even if we really take the time to understand where they're coming from, the second big mistake we all make is that we tend to argue the facts. We tend to think they just don't understand and if I just tell them what they need to know, they'll change their views. And that is just not how well, And why doesn't that work? Operate. So there's this great expression that I like to tell all my students, and that is feelings create facts. So if we encounter a set of facts that challenge us, that really challenge our fundamental beliefs, our fundamental values, we will find ways to reject them. So we will subject these facts to scrutiny, we will ask ourselves, well, must I, must I believe this information? How can I discount it? And we do the opposite, of course, if we find information that confirms what we already view. We think, well, can I believe this? We don't subject it to much scrutiny. So if you're trying to argue with someone about an important topic like political values or an issue people really care about through facts, you're never going to get anywhere because they'll find ways to reject those facts, just as you find ways to reject their set of facts. You have to argue through a much more uh, emotional and personal channel. And then how do we do that then? So if we're not arguing the facts, what's the aim, I guess, of of engaging in this conversation? Well, some people might have the aim of changing other people's views. (laughs) I think that's a tall order. I think the aim is moving closer together. And the way to do that is to find common, some sort of common ground. Uh, And the common ground that I always strive for is around shared values. Really, there's there's actually quite a finite set of values that people care about. Whenever I ask my students to do a values exercise in class 
and write down the values they care about. There's just, there's just a small set of values that basically everybody shares. And it, it, these values are usually reflected in, in our beliefs anyway. Uh, so if you, in, in a conversation, if you really seek to understand somebody else's perspective, if you really drill down to the core set of issues, why they care about the topic that you're talking about, you'll probably find that you have some, something in common with them around that value system. And that's where you can start to move closer together. So take me through the five whys. You say it's a simple but effective exercise for these situations. The, the basic premise of this exercise is that you just ask somebody why they care about an issue five times. Uh, so if somebody's talking about uh, climate change, uh, you, could, you could ask them why they care about this issue. They give you a reason. You ask them again, why do they care about that issue? And you, and you can use this technique just to drill down and you get to that very base value system. Should we have a crack at the five whys and I'll be the why curious uh, curious person. Uh, we'll be Absolutely. colleagues and we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll try and have a political discussion. Are you up for that, Raina? Absolutely. Now, uh, this could be a hypothetical. So do you want to make your um, political statement and then I'll, I'll try and practice? <laughs> you sure. You can coach me. Uh, how, about, how about I say to you over our cup of coffee that I think Brexit uh, was an absolute disaster and I, I certainly didn't vote for Brexit. I, I'm, I certainly voted to remain. Oh, Raina, why? I just think it is a crazy decision for a small island separate itself from a mass of other countries. I, I think we're fundamentally weaker for it. Mm. And why is that? Yeah, so Lisa, here I, w- I would probably slightly rephrase the question. Yeah. I would probably say something like, wow, you, you really have strong views about this. You seem to care about this issue a lot. Why do you care about this issue so much? I must admit I probably then wasn't listening properly because I was so obsessed with getting to five whys. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. Well, this yeah. is and this is a problem that we have with our conversations is we're often centering ourselves in the conversation, and so a, a great trick to learn is to really focus on the other person, really center them in 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 what they're talking about, focus on what uh, on what they're saying. So let's try one more then, Rainy. You seem like you really care about this issue. Why do you care so much? <sighs> yeah, I think that's because you know I, I feel I love history and. If I look at you know how the European Union came to be, and if I look at the history of Europe, what we see is that not that long ago, you know, my grandparents' generation, Europe was at war, and things like the European Union really stabilize relations between countries and and make them peaceful. And it just seems crazy to forget our history, to be so short sighted, and to put our people, real people, into a precarious position. Mm, I love that. And I'm really fascinated by the fact that you are so interested in history. Where do you think that comes from? Why are you so interested in history? Yeah, see, yeah. now you're getting what do you think? Is that yeah. better? So, yeah, why, why do you care about <laughs> yeah, this, this sense of short-sightedness, this sense of history? And, and you can see I'm pausing now. You're causing me, me to reflect. I'm really having to sort of dig deep into this, even though this is true. I really do care about history and I do... I think history has a lot to teach us. 
Now, Raina, and as we were going through that, I noticed that I was also making choices to get more personal to you, so away from the issue Mm. and more about uncovering a bit more about you. And I was finding that really fascinating. And to be honest, you know, I think we might get closer because of this trying to deepen understanding through through politics, because as you say, you know, you've drawn that connection between politics and our deepest beliefs. So maybe, you know, that's what we've uncovered here. And and actually, those five whys are wonderful to get there. Exactly. And this comes full circle back to what I was saying, that we often want to argue the facts when we have to work through personal channels. And when we are comfortable, and when we start to have conversations, which are more about, tell me about who you are in this conversation, as opposed to tell me about what the facts are, about this issue, these conversations get a lot more comfortable and they get a lot less contentious and we start to build empathy with each other. Hey, Raina, why do you think many people avoid talking politics at work? Uh, there's this idea that it's, it's just not polite to have these sort of conversations when they might be contentious. But I would argue that it's more important than ever. Uh, we, do, we live in a different world now. Uh, so the world before social media, the world before the internet, uh, was one in which our social network really called us called us into these conversations. Uh, so if I look out my window and I, I can't see evidence for this round planet, I think the Earth is flat. And I, I go and in my immediate social network, I say to people, look, I think the Earth is actually flat. Everybody's going to say, you're an idiot. That's not true, right? Mm. But now we live in a world where I can come up with these ideas and I can find people on the internet, all over the world, who will reinforce those views. And if I'm on social media, the algorithms are constructed to reinforce those views by connecting me to people who are posting about those things. And so this is a problem that we see across the world at the moment with misinformation and conspiracy theories. This is where our social network really becomes important because our social network can call us back in and have these important conversations and tether us to facts and reason and what is evident in the world. I think you've unleashed a beast. I'm just going to be going around asking people for their political <laughs> views so I can do my five whys and, and get to know them better. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> I hope it goes well for you. Thanks, Raina. My pleasure. Dr. Raina Brands, Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at London Business School. So we've covered talking politics at work. So what about the actual politics at work? Office politics hasn't disappeared with our move to paid pyjama time. It's just changed forms. And it's more important than ever to understand how to navigate it. With me to discuss is Dory Clark. Dory's a consultant and keynote speaker with expertise in marketing and branding, and I have been a total fan since discovering her first book, Brand You. But more on that in a later episode. A former journalist, Dory has also been a presidential campaign spokeswoman, so I imagine that there isn't much about politics that she doesn't know. Hello, Dory. Lisa, I'm so glad to speak with you. Thanks. Dory, first, let's define office politics, shall we? I've seen it defined as, quote, the activities, attitudes or behaviours that are used to get or keep power or an advantage within a business or a company. Would you agree? You know, I would actually say that a definition like that is kind of stacking the deck because ultimately (laughs) office politics is really just another name for 
human interactions and human relationships. I feel like there's kind of the pejorative of office politics that is applied to those things by people who often feel resentful that they need to engage in them. So you're saying that we can't exist without office politics? There's no such thing as an office without it? Well, I think that whenever more than one human gets together, there are relational dynamics. That's true in friendships. That's true in families. And we have a label for it at work. We call it office politics. But really, I think that's a way of kind of putting it in a box and separating ourselves from the necessary task of understanding how do you relate to other people in positive ways so that you can get done what you need to get done. Uh, I think that that sometimes people are very resistant to those activities. And so they malign it as a way of excusing themselves from the responsibility. And do you think it's dangerous to ignore it or malign it? <laughs> I do, actually. <laughs> I, I, in many ways, think that we need to lean in to those things that make a lot of people uncomfortable. You, you think about networking, which is kind of a related activity. There's lots of people that say, oh, I hate networking. I hate playing politics. Really, this is just about getting to know people. I mean, you, you can't get anything done as a human being at work or outside of work without connecting with other people to do it. I, I think there's lots of different ways that we can engage. There may be ways that are better or worse, but excusing ourselves from the responsibility of learning how to relate to other people seems like a, a tremendous blind spot for someone to have professionally. And what about that component of people seeing that as being somewhat Machiavellian? Well, I think that when people are deriding, you know, the playing of politics, they're imagining the worst case scenario mm. of people stabbing each other in the back, you know, of, of skullduggery of some form. <laughs> and of course, that's terrible. We don't want anyone to behave in that fashion. And I'm certainly not condoning it. But that is a straw man. That is a caricature of office politics. Ultimately, what I think we need to recognize is that when it comes to making decisions or getting things done, there are both rational and emotional reasons behind it. And if we want to be effective, we need to actually be thoughtful about the totality of what enables people to make choices and make decisions and say, all right, how can I make this as easy as possible for them to say yes? You know, who do I need to talk to? What groundwork do I need to lay? Uh, we all know that if you have a positive relationship with someone, if you've taken the time to get to know them, to understand them, to build a relationship where they trust you and trust your judgment, you're going to have an easier go of it because you don't, you're not coming in cold. You don't have to pre-establish your credentials or your bona fides. Instead, they can really listen and hear you. I think a lot of people who want to take shortcuts will say, oh, those other people are playing politics. But actually, that's kind of the easy way out. So what are some of the different forms you've seen office politics take in your own career, Dory? If we're talking about extreme situations of, of you know, people behaving badly, um, I've certainly seen plenty. <laughs> there was an employee that I had who was not hired directly by me. He was hired by my boss. And he was kind of lazy, 
but he was <laughs> he was very cute and he would flirt with my boss. And so even though he wasn't doing the work, he could kind of get away with it because my boss liked him so much. Mm. So <laughs> so that would be one example that people might say, oh, that's a form of uh, of playing politics. Especially when you think it's not deserving. So if there's promotions being given or um, even just the spotlight on a person, maybe that's the, the part of office politics that we don't like. So what would you do in that situation, Dory? Well, you know, I, I can I can certainly tell you what I did, which is go to my boss with this guy and try to broker a solution where really? um, I was expressing that I felt like there were some shortcomings in performance and I wanted to make her aware of it, but I also wanted to make him aware of it. So it wasn't <laughs> like I was talking about him behind his back. I think ultimately, if you can bring in all the parties together and have an open, transparent conversation, that is often uh, the best way to proceed. I think overall, when it comes to office politics, it is never a good or a fair thing when someone who is unqualified or who is behaving maliciously gets ahead. But we also need to recognize those are not the only people who are skilled at negotiating relationships. Sometimes they are, and it allows them to get away with things that they shouldn't, which should be condemned. But what I want to encourage the smart and the thoughtful and the hardworking people to do is to not just fall back on their virtue and say, well, I work hard, and so therefore I shouldn't have to do anything else. It should just be noticed. Well, you know what? Not much is noticed these days. People are busy, and I want the best people to be successful. And the way to help ensure it, the way to stack the deck in your favor, is to take an active interest in understanding enough about human dynamics so that you can build trusting relationships before you need them so that your ideas will be well-received. To me, that is playing politics in the right way. Now, Dory, many firms in Australia have moved to at least a hybrid model. So we're splitting work between home and in the office. How has working remotely changed the face of office politics so working remotely has been an interesting development in office politics. Mm. One aspect, which has, I think, been positive for a fair number of people, is if you are someone who has had a beef with a colleague, or maybe you didn't even like going into work because there was someone there, it could be a boss or coworker that you had a problem with, all of a sudden, you actually are interacting with them much less. And so work can some, sometimes <laughs> be much more pleasant. And extrapolating on what you've been saying then, I think this beautiful reframe of office politics is actually being building relationships between people. I would imagine that it would directly translate to even remote working. It's just the way in which we're developing those relationships may be changing a little bit. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I think overall, nobody really wants to be in a situation where it's cutthroat and people are out to get each other. That's not the world that most of us want to live in. And we can actually all do our part to fight against that by creating authentic relationships and really reaching out as as soon as, as we're able and, and being that 
person who acts first to try to get to know coworkers, to try to be thoughtful. Because if you are actually showing people that you care, you want to learn about them as a person, you want to be thoughtful, you want to be reliable and helpful toward them, of course, there are going to be uh, some uh, people who are going to take advantage of it. But it's a, it's a very small number. The majority of people really want to be working in a collaborative collegial environment. And we can all take the steps to help create that. Thank you so much, Dory. Thanks. Great to speak with you. Entrepreneur and executive coach, Dory Clark. Join me again next week as we bring back guests from our most popular episodes to hear what the pandemic has taught them. 2020, lessons from the show. I kept focused on being helpful to people in whatever shape or form, and that got me through. I think the most surprising thing I've learned is I am very rigid. Probably my key learning is out of all of this year is that as a leader, you have to be honest about where you're at and how you're feeling, and that reassures people. You know, that's quote saying that you don't know how strong you are until being strong is the only option, and I just kept going. And then I realised, oh, I can actually do better than I thought, and I, that surprised myself. <laughs> this Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who has learnt patience with technology and that show is one word, not two. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.